Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Tuesday, February 18th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. It is such a treat today because not only do we have Dan Klein with us, but we have Dan Klein in studio with us. Uh, it's it's always fun to be here, but it's double fun when it's someone. So I feel like I've known you for years. Like yes. you've been here a couple years. I've always been told uh, by Chris Hill that you're the person who's most like me that I should most listen to uh, on <laughs> the podcast. A so for it, me. it's been very exciting that we've gotten to do three shows maybe in the last couple months mm-hmm. together, but to do one in person, I find, and, and listeners, you can tell us this, I find that the chemistry leaps like, you know, you you go from like slowly building a chemistry to when you could see someone's eyes and do a show together that everything we do when I'm not here, uh, when I'm randomly in whatever tropical island I'm usually <laughs> on, that we will do better shows. Yeah, I'm going to try not to uh, dive into cruises again for the <laughs> millionth time with you, but I, I do feel extremely jealous of your life down there in Florida, right? Uh, West Palm Beach and uh, back to going to Cozumel in March. So, oh wow! So, but, so what? What is bringing you up to the dreary land of DC, where it is now cold and rainy? So, I try to put some FaceTime in at the office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am a, a Mollyful contractor, so I have a little bit less of a direct connection to the company. And this is a lesson for all of you who are contractors or remote workers. Sometimes, if they don't see you, they forget you exist. So, I I work as as part of two different teams here, plus the podcast. And just sometimes, whether it's your boss or your coworkers, they look at you like, oh, yeah, Dan's here. Like, maybe he could do this. So, like, yesterday, Matt Frankel, another industry-focused contributor, and I shot a bunch of Instagram videos for Million Acres, our real estate site. That's not something that would have come about uh, had we not physically been here. And if it works, maybe it'll become something we do, part of our job, part of something we do for fun. Matt and I like to talk to each other, so who knows? Uh, but the real reason is we didn't realize the office was closed Monday. And we booked and they comped us at MGM. We're both gamblers, as we've talked about a lot. And mm-hmm. we're actually doing a show with Nick Seipel next month on gambling. They gave us two free nights, which it's very easy to get free nights in Vegas. It is very hard here in yeah. Baltimore to get free nights. And we both went, well, what meetings can we schedule Monday to make it worth our while? <laughs> and you'll hear uh, next Monday's Industry Focus, Matt taped a really excellent interview. And we did just enough stuff to be able to sort of say to our significant others, like, you know, yeah, it's totally it's work. Like, there's a reason <laughs> to be here. Well, I can't imagine how busy um, your days must be while you're here. So I appreciate you jumping on with me. It's all, always a pleasure. Always happy to come in. And this is a topic we're going to talk about today that I know is, say, close to your heart. That's a strong way to put it. But we had talked about it a lot over email previously and thinking about when the best time to kind of get into this topic, I guess the topic of the retail apocalypse is. And I know that you have some strong opinions about the I, I, apocalypse is such a strong wor- well, word. But So here's the thing. I'm a journalist by trade. And I think the problem is when you don't cover something regularly, when you are coming to the retail apocalypse from the Macy's in my town closed, other stores I've heard of have closed, this must be a disaster for retail. And the reason for it is clearly Amazon. People are shopping at Amazon. And I'm not going to totally say, of course, people shop at Amazon and some shopping has gone there. 
But you will see things misreported as much as I've seen the number half of all sales are happening online. That is not true. 13% of sales, not including autos, and the vast majority of cars are bought not online, 13% of sales are taking place online. That number has ticked up like basically a percentage point a year. So what it exposed is badly run retailers. So let's take, and I hate to pick on JCPenney and Sears. Oh, it's so easy though. But if you go to Sears, Sears sold products that it used to have exclusives on. So so you can no, you no longer need to go to Sears to buy Craftsman tools. I forget if it's Lowe's or Home Depot. I think it's Lowe's. You can go to Lowe's and they make Craftsman tools. They have the same rules that Sears had with warranties. So they sold away something that made you go in. They dismantled some of their home services. They stopped having the money to turn over their merchandise. And one of the examples I'll, I'll give, and I, I think I've actually used this on air before, is I went to a JCPenney and I needed size 10 slides. Any brand, any price point, I was going to a water park the next day and I needed, and it was a holiday, so not a lot was open, and I needed size 10. And I walked in and JCPenney had seven different kinds of slides, none of them in the size I needed. No. Because when you get tight on money, and I know this from my retail days, you can't order until you've hit below a certain inventory on that product. So maybe your reorder point with Nike is $10,000 for an individual JCPenney to place an order. I'm making that number up, but it's that that was at the toy store like Hasbro was $5,000. So we could bring in the initial $5,000, but if we sold out of Candyland, we couldn't place a $2,500 reorder, which was the minimum point for the reorder because you're tying up $2,500 and you don't know what's going to sell aside from Candyland sold well. That's what happens at JCPenney and Sears. You go in and it looks like they're well merchandised, but you'll be like, they're out of extra large and large. They only have small and medium in all the men's shirts. That's super awesome for my son, who is a smaller or medium. Less good for me, who isn't. <laughs> and it, so you start to see all these little cracks. So people say retail apocalypse, but the apocalypse is that they didn't invest in their stores, that other people did it better, that there are better ways to buy many things. Target has been absolutely disruptive in creating clothing brands that would take away from Sears and JCPenney and what they sell. If I'm buying a basic black polo shirt and I could buy that at Target where I'm already at, they're probably going to get that business and I'm not going to go to the mall and I'm not going to, to do certain things. So you see all this reporting of the retail apocalypse, and it's based on sheer numbers. And here's another number people get wrong. There's going to be 9,000 store closures this year. What will happen to the malls? What they don't report is there are going to be more than 9,000 store openings. The difference is when a Macy's closes, it has a material effect on a lesser mall. An A mall can say, Hey, let's put a skating rink in, a co-working space, a hotel, residential, a gym, a supermarket, like whatever enhances the value of our plaza, which is very healthy because all of those new additions are stores like Casper Mattress and Untuck It and Peloton and things that are going into top tier malls. So is there a retail shakeout? Yes. Bad malls are dying. S Toys R Us was always in the bad mall. Like it was always in the like shopping plaza that has like a supermarket that's not a name brand and like maybe it had a sleepies. Like it was never the the best place to be. Like it didn't have good fast food. It had like a subway. Like those are very hard spots to rent. And the reality is those probably need to get knocked down and turned into houses or parks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's hard to make money on a park, but 
so you're seeing this narrative of I used to shop at Payless, now there's no Payless. That's because Amazon or you know Zapatos knocked Payless out. And the reality is no, Payless knocked Payless out. Toys R Us closed because they were purchased in a $6 billion leverage buyout that didn't give them the money to make the changes their CEO knew they need to make. The new Toys R Uses that have launched are interactive and there's all sorts of stuff to do. And again, I ran a toy store. It was interactive, had all sorts of stuff to do, had a huge, still still has, a huge model train set up, had places for people to build things. We would do Lego events, readings in the store for parents with little kids. That's what Toys R Us needed to be. But when all your revenue is going into servicing your debt, you can't change, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. J.C. Penney, Jill Salto, has great ideas about yoga studios and all sorts of things she can do in J.C. Penney. Those things cost money, and she doesn't have any money. Yeah. So when I think about traditional retailers, I think J.C. Penney and Macy's—you kind of hit it on the head there. I think about the fashion industry and how. Maybe the fashion industry itself has been disrupted over the past decade or so, because you see the success of companies like TJ Maxx and Marshalls, Ross, companies that are discount clothing retailers that are still driving a ton of foot traffic into their stores um, at a lower price point, but not offering a particularly good experience. I mean, you kind of had the treasure hunt experience, well, right? Well, yeah. It, see, it, so I hate that experience. <laughs> I, I had I love it. I had the strangest Marshalls story of any person. Five or six years ago, I needed a suit. I didn't know Marshalls worked that way. I went to Marshalls. They had a suit in my size, tailored, like basically fit me off the rack. Other than getting, you have to get the pants uh, like finished at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I bought it, and it was cheap, and I thought that's how Marshalls worked. That like you went to Marshalls, they had what you wanted in your size. I then went to Marshalls again because I needed a dress shirt. And they had like they have white. They always have like basic. Mm-hmm. Color. They didn't have whatever color I wanted, and it was a miserable experience because I don't want a treasure hunt. I don't go to the mall going like I wonder if there's stuff I like here. I go to Marshalls because I need socks. So, but yeah, for most people, Marshalls, Costco, Five Below, mm-hmm. that shopping as entertainment. And yes, there is some value to finding something you need, but there's also value. And my my son went through a period that when he was into designer labels, oh my God, I found a Supreme shirt at this price point. I'll be like, do you like the shirt? Is it a design? He'd be like, well, no, but it's a Supreme shirt and it's only 12. And I'm like, this is a bizarre way to shop. Like, (laughs) like, shouldn't you shop? Like, I need a shirt. I like the shirt. The shirt fits. Not, but obviously a lot of people shop that way. And I understand because I like going to Five Below. You go to Five Below, you don't know if it's going to be like Japanese candy or sweatpants, <laughs> and there might be something you want in there, and it's going to be you know $2.50, or at least it's going to be below $5, yeah. though they have a few things now. Yeah, they, ha- they have a 10 and above section, <laughs> but that section is, well, that section is like board games that would be $50 for $15. So like, like yes, they've broken their rules, and Costco, I will go to Costco because I know I need bulk toilet paper for our vacation home so someone doesn't get there at two in the morning and there's no water or toilet paper or toothpaste. So I go for a reason and then maybe I come back with an eight foot teddy bear or something. I've never fallen for that one, but I've come very close to buying a kayak despite not having any place I could use a kayak. Yeah. When I when I think about going back a decade though, and I look, knowing what I know today, um, is there a way that you can save Macy's. Is there a way that you can save JCPenney? Because 
from my perspective, has always it's always been that the merchandising has been what killed them. They were they were so tied to their inventory that they had absolutely no flexibility. Whereas these other stores like Five Below, like Costco, like TJ Maxx, they the inventory was almost second. They got what they got, and they either have it or they don't. But when you like you mentioned, when you go into a Macy's or a JCPenney or Nordstrom's, you expect them to have a size ten shoe, and if they don't have it, then you're like, what so- the heck? So I put Macy's and JCPenney in different baskets. Macy's is largely pulling out of bad malls. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a mall, there's four or five malls near me, but there's a mall in Boynton Beach, Florida that has a Macy's. Oddly, not one of the ones that's closing. But when you walk around that mall, it has like stores that aren't chains and like way too many stores that sell cell phone cases or hats. <laughs> like th- those aren't businesses. <laughs> so, so it makes sense to close that Macy's. And if you look at a good Macy's, Macy's is still profitable, so Macy's is making strategic decisions to close stores. And there are some things. Now, if you tell me five years from now there will be an easy way for Amazon to measure me and and sell me a suit and have it fit and work, and I'll like it and I'll know what the fabric feels like, but if I'm going to buy a $500 suit, I am going to Macy's and a mean older person who doesn't want to sell me a suit at a good value, it's always the same person, uh, will put me in a suit and make me feel bad about myself and I will buy a suit because that's how, and and then somewhere during that process, I'll be like, why didn't I just spend a hundred dollars more and go to Brooks Brothers where they would probably be nice to me. Um, But that experience still matters. So I think with Macy's, they are in much less dire shape. It's much more about right-sizing their retail. They are going to strategically open smaller stores in lifestyle plazas. JCPenney, Jill Salto has great ideas at but she got there too late. Mm-hmm. So unless there is a multi-billionaire benefactor who sees the value of JCPenney, um, and I don't expect this to happen, but transforming JCPenney with new labels and more fast fashion and more reasons to go to the store is great, but every move JCPenney has made that seemed like a good idea has been executed badly. And the example I'll give is toys. I thought it was very smart when they said they were going to have a full-time toy section uh, once Toys R Us closed because toys make kids happy to go to the mall with mom and dad yep. and make it eat. And there's generally not a good toy store. There's usually a bad toy store in, in most malls, uh, if there's one at all. It's like it'll sell calendars and a few toys, and it's just never that great as someone who is in the – you know, since KB Toy Stores, which was a mall-based chain, closed many, many years ago, that's been. But what JCPenney did is got whatever toys someone would sell them and put them in a pile in the middle of the floor. And I'm exaggerating a tiny bit, but it wasn't well merchandised. Mm-hmm. They didn't go out and find someone like me who worked in the toy industry and could tell them what the movers are. So they might, on one hand, have like one toy that needs to be sold. A, a board game that costs $75, no one's going to buy that on a whim. You have to be sold that by someone knowledgeable. It's why Barnes & Noble struggles to sell high-end board games. But if they happen to be near a local independent toy store that can't discount as much as Barnes & Noble, they might sell more in that market because the local toy store did the work. But they would just have like random, not necessarily the right toys, very badly merchandised. So they took something that could have been profitable and certainly – uh, while it was not a driver for Walmart this quarter, they specifically cited toys as a weakness. Toys has generally been a no-margin traffic driver, and it would have made sense. Same thing with appliances. There was some niche to sell appliances with Sears going out, but even with the JCPenney's that added appliances did not add the appropriate expertise 
to sell you and upsell you. Sears, say what you will, has experienced appliance salesmen. So you walk in and you can say, and then Nick Seipel was at my vacation home when my washing machine died, or my dryer, it caught on fire. And Nick's, oh. Nick called and he said, does it always shoot flames <laughs> out the back? And I said, no, probably don't use it. And I didn't go to Sears because there wasn't one near me. I went to Best Buy. And I told Best Buy, I said, well, it's a vacation home. The dryers used to do sheets like twice a month, towels. It's not heavy use. Mm -hmm. Can I get away with the cheapest one? And they said, yeah, absolutely. Like for the, what you're describing, you shouldn't buy the $600 one where you can watch your stuff tumble around. And it was the salesman knew what he was doing or she was doing. I don't remember which. Uh, and it was a good experience and it made me feel good about what they were recommending. Now, if they had any reason to recommend the more expensive one, they certainly would have. And that would be the smart thing for them to do. J.C. Penney, it felt like, oh, if you know what you're doing, you can buy this and otherwise. So most struggling retailers, if they have cash in the bank, you know, GameStop, and it's, it's another one we've talked about on the show a lot. I don't feel there's a need for GameStop because video games are downloadable and that's going to get better. And even if I buy a physical disc in GameStop, it's still like four hours before I could play it because it has to catch up. So it's not a good experience in any way. It doesn't shortcut me getting to play the game. And sometimes it takes so long, I forgot I bought the game and then it's like three months later before I mm -hmm. touch it again. So most of these struggling companies know, but Macy's probably. So I want to pick your brain a little bit more about the e-commerce aspect of this retail apocalypse. Again, hate calling it that. But before I do so, I want to remind all of our listeners that if you're looking for more stock ideas and recommendations, you can always check out our Stock Advisor service. You'll get Stock Advisor recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every month, Best Buys Now, and a whole lot more. You can go to if.fool.com. We have a special 50% discount just for our listeners. So check it out at if.fool.com. So, Dan... Let's talk about e-commerce here, because you named some companies that I, I'm i interested in thinking about what their future looks like. Notably, you mentioned Walmart, the fact that they reported today. They, they didn't have a great quarter. It wasn't disastrous. But their online sales was by far the biggest driver of growth. And the same has typically been true for companies like Best Buy. So, wouldn't that make an argument for four more purchases moving online? So, that doesn't change that the overall percentage. But what is becoming squishy in the omni-channel world is what is a digital sale. And different companies, I'm pretty sure, account for it differently. But largely, the definition would be the actual transaction was completed online and it was delivered. The reality is now, you can walk into a Best Buy, have someone help you, decide that you don't want to put the television in your car, order it, and they will bring it to you. And you could then walk over to a counter and pay for someone to set it up, or you could go home and order that online. So I think the definition of what a digital sale is, I don't think you should look at those breakdowns. I don't think they matter. Because if you, if you say the function of a physical Walmart has become more about being a distribution hub for Grocery delivery, uh, curbside pickup, some digital orders, the ability to, in the case of Amazon and, and some of its retail locations, Whole Foods mostly, uh, their ability to do same-day and one-day orders, if the value of a store is no longer foot traffic, you know, 
same store comparable sales because arguably you could have a store do 20% less. Like Imagine if Walmart reported a 20% drop in same store sales. There would be analysts throwing themselves off buildings. Not this building because we're not like that, but people would flip out. But if a paragraph later it said, oh, by the way, each store processes 50% more goods in addition, uh, you know, there's a 20% drop in registered transactions, Mm -hmm. but we are sending stuff out the back door that was paid for online, so we're booking them as online sales. You have to look at the total picture and the total value of a store, and I think you're going to see a lot more repositioning. Uh, One of the things Kohl's has done is change how much space is devoted to merchandise and how much space is devoted to back-end processing. I think you're going to see that transactionally at grocery stores, if you like Florida's full of Publix. And there is a 10,000 square foot system I saw at Shop Talk last year that can pack all your orders, mostly robotic, a little bit of human intervention, that could serve like a four mile region. A four mile region is maybe like, I don't know, 20 Publix in most of Florida, which is very d- densely populated. You have to decide what 10,000 square feet you're going to take away to do that. It doesn't fit in your existing back end operation that is designed to stock sh- store shelves. Now, that's hard to say, stock sh- store shelves. <laughs> I'm not going to try that again. Um, so you you might see changes in how retail is done. Uh, like we just got a a, a sur la table in in my mm-hmm. neighborhood, and there is a huge section of it devoted to classes. They're only going to teach classes a couple days a week, but my guess is it is a revenue neutral slash maybe a revenue driver use of the space that puts people into the store. And if one of them buys a $1,200 toaster, it was probably worth having a $10 how to make toast class or whatever the class is in. So you're going to see a lot of repurposing in sort of that number. What's a digital sale? What's a physical sale? I don't think that's going to be an easy uh, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics number anymore. And there's a story that you passed on to me last week, I believe it was early this week, about Staples. And Staples is a retailer that we don't think about all that often, but the story you passed along was Staples kind of doing, I want to call it a Sir Top thing. I feel like that's probably throwing Sir Top <laughs> under the top, the table. Um, but the problem is, is that they're, they're rebranding their stores into the Staples Connect, which is like this lounge working space. Yeah, so it's only six stores. Oh, okay. Um, and, and this follows Office Depot doing similar things. Mm-hmm. In full disclosure, I have a cousin who works in marketing for Office Depot. Not that he's in on any of this decision making, <laughs> but he is reasonably high up, so it's worth saying. But what they've done with Staples Connect is they're putting in a co-working space. And that makes sense because Staples is generally in a good location. It's usually not in the top tier mall, but it's often on the main drag in a town. Uh, They're also adding in, and I think this is very unique, nobody else is doing this, a podcast studio. And I like that because as someone who does podcasting from home, it's actually sometimes difficult. Like maybe my building is doing maintenance that day. Mm -hmm. Maybe I I have an office space, but maybe the the office next to me is playing music and doesn't want to turn it down. Being able to have dedicated, bookable podcast space, you know, where you pay whatever, $30 per half hour to use it is valuable. Having co-working in a, in a, strip mall that's well located as opposed to in an office building. There's built-in parking, there's built-in restaurants, there's there's a lot of good factors to it. And if you're Staples, uh, if you're Office Depot, if you're a lot of retailers, you have to look at and say, I have this footprint. How else can I make money off it? It's one of the things I've often talked about with Barnes & Noble. When I ran the toy store, we had, and now they have a beautiful second building, but we had a basement devoted to gameplay. And you could buy your your collectible miniatures, take them downstairs out of the package and go play. And we had all the tablescapes and all the scenery and all the things you needed. 
Barnes and Noble has an empty CD section in almost any one of its stores <laughs> that's like 6,000 square feet. You could own gaming. So you could probably add half a million dollars in annual sales to every Barnes and Noble by hiring one $30,000 a year kid who knows this stuff to work from like four in the afternoon to midnight and run this and you'll sell an awful lot of candy on top of that and Starbucks coffee. And I think more stores need to really think about what can I offer that's experiential you know, that, that fosters the use of our product. So you can't just be a store that sells musical instruments like Walmart has music and arts in some of its locations where you can go take music lessons inside a Walmart. Well, that gives mom a reason, dad a reason to go to Walmart and they might do their grocery shopping there when otherwise they would have gone to the grocery store or to Target or used Instacart or Shipt or any of the 17 other services you have for that. So it's all about like, it's harder to get me to leave my house than it ever has been. I can order anything pretty much you know, just with my phone. So you need a draw. Okay. I go to Whole Foods because Whole Foods is a really good coffee counter and that doesn't travel that well if I order from it or they do, you know, a sushi counter and, and hot lunches and other things that I might get off. So instead of going to Publix, which is cheaper, I go to Whole Foods. That's going to be the future of retail is figuring out reasons like Staples is trying to do probably too little too late, uh, that to get people to come to Staples. If your office is a Staples and you need a pen, where are you going to buy it? That's a good point. And while we're on the subject of disruption in industries, not to to leave it there, but I, I know, there's a big news that that came out. Um, I know that Dylan covered this in Industry Focus on Friday, but that's the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint, and it was essentially going to leave John Ledger, the outgoing CEO of T-Mobile, um, and open candidate for new yeah, well, ventures in the future to disrupt. So interestingly, John Ledger a few months ago announced that he was moving on. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of speculation at the time that he was going to WeWork. Uh, oh, because, I remember that. Because SoftBank, which owns Sprint, has a major stake in WeWork, and that, that would make sense. <laughs> uh, but that's not the case. He, he may know where he's going, but we don't know where he's going. So the question we asked each other as we were, were slacking back and forth this week was what industry would we like to see John Ledger? And I love, I mean, we talked about my issues with their Super Bowl commercial, but for the most part, he's my favorite CEO. He's brash without being a jerk. So he's doing that sort of like P.T. Barnum, Vince McMahon character, but without being mean about it. And he's very customer focused. He's broken a lot of things at T-Mobile that were bad about the industry. So where do, would we like to see him go and basically force the industry to be better? And my example, I want him to go into the rental car space. And I see no possibility that he will do this. But when you rent a car, which I do at the one of the airports near here, I won't throw the airport under the bus, uh, every time, every month, I'm here once a month, sometimes more, you can either opt to join one rental car company's loyalty program, book through them at a much higher rate, but have a good experience, or you could do what I do is book by rate through I use Southwest Vacations, but you could use Priceline or probably other discount services. And you might pay, I think I'm paying $18 a day for my rental car versus it was $65 to book wow. direct or through Amex or through some of the other mm -hmm. options. But I have to wait in line. And if you have ever done a rental car, no person in front of you in line has ever rented a car before. They don't have a license. They don't have fingers. They don't have a credit card. They don't know how any of the things work. So it always takes like 25 minutes per person. And I look at it and I say, 
couldn't somebody force this? Like, could John Ledger come in and say, okay, fill out all this once. We'll have all your stuff on file. Even though you have to wait in line, you can short circuit a lot of the pro- – like, what's your insurance company? Do you want the supplemental insurance? Do you want – get all of those things. I know those questions are coming, so I just rattle through them. The other thing that I think a John Ledger can fix in rental cars is what I will call dis- – deceptive practices. And the example I will give is sometimes when you're in line and they say, hey, I see you're in a compact car. Would you like something bigger? The upgrade is $10 a day. Sometimes they're doing that because they have those cars and they have the cheaper car you want and maybe you'll spend the 10 bucks and it benefits them. Usually that is not my experience. Usually they will try to get money from you and then you will walk to the lot and realize they don't have the size you rented. And when you ask the guy on the lot, what do I do? He tells you, oh, just take a midsize. So they are trying to sell you something they full well know you were going to get for free. And it is disingenuous. It is, it is just not correct. So I would like to see John Ledger or someone go into that space and figure out how to make it as easy as possible. I will pay slightly more for convenience. I will not pay two or three, maybe even four times as much just to have a good experience. I don't want to derail the conversation too much about rental cars, but you speaking reminded me of the one or two times that I have rented a car. Once when I was traveling abroad, which was a fine experience because you know, it was abroad, it was in the UK, it was just, everything was much simpler over there. But it reminded me you know, when I moved within the US here, um, I use U-Haul, which is owned by a company <laughs> called Americo. And that process, the U-Haul process that Americo has lined up, is outstanding. I don't know if you've ever gone oh, through the ma- process ma- yourself. Many times. It, yeah. it, it takes two minutes. Two minutes. You download an app. I did everything without ever seeing a person's face, which to me is the best. If I can do something without having to have any human interaction, I will. I mean, I went in, uh, got a code, picked up the key, took the car, dropped it back off. It was all in all a fine experience. So I agree with your analysis that there's probably room for disruption there. And they're letting you rent a 32-foot truck or a 28-foot yeah, exactly. truck. They shouldn't be letting you rent that. <laughs> that, that, that that's the, the breakdown of the process. There's no test. Like I drove whatever the biggest size you could rent without a special license uh-huh. from Connecticut to West Palm Beach, Florida. <laughs> straight 24 hours it took like 20 hours stop for meals and gas and that's it white knuckled the entire time because who knows how to drive this yeah you know the other thing i will say about rental cars just to, to, to further go is my wife and i have different last names uh she she kept her maiden name it made sense her first name is celine all the same letters as klein doesn't look right <laughs> um so we rented a car and she needed to be an additional driver and she shows her license and they said, oh, are you married? She said, yes, we're married. And they said, oh, do you have a copy of your marriage certificate? And I just looked at them and went, oh, yeah, I carry that around. Like, like <laughs> no. I wouldn't know where that is at home, let alone have it with me. And it just became the disconnect. And eventually we had my son's passport with us because he's too young to have legal ID and it's always good to have ID. And we convinced them that that she was, we were married and that we could be covered, but it took like half an hour and we wouldn't have done it except she literally needed to drive the car mm-hmm. someplace where I wasn't going to be. And stuff like that needs to get fixed. If I could download an app and take a picture of our marriage license or whatever to prove we're married or do whatever needs to be done, when you check in for a cruise ship, you can pre-do everything down to you take your picture, you scan your passport. It will be stamped on your ticket, expedited arrival. Now, I obviously get some perks because I of loyalty tiers. Oh, so, we're on cruises again. So, well, no matter, <laughs> but like it's a, it's a, it's an embarkation process. Yeah. It's it's travel. 
you can very similar to a rental car, but if you do the work beforehand, you can cut the line, no matter who you are, get on board faster. So if a lot of people aren't going to do that. We've experienced, like, there will be plenty of people that show up at a rental car counter and don't know you pretty much need to have a credit card. It's going to be much harder if you don't have a credit card. Those people are just going to take a long time in line. But those of us who are kind of savvy travelers, I mean, you're, you're headed off to Kilimanjaro after oh, this. Don't remind so, me. <laughs> so, yeah, this is our last show together. It so, is. So, so, <laughs> no, she'll, she'll be back. But yeah, a lot of this no one is thinking about because mm-hmm. they just have a good business. Hey, the Super Bowl's in town. All the cars are rented. Who cares if you wait four hours? So they don't have to. A John Ledger could force them to have to. Yeah, and I hope John Ledger is listening to this podcast because to me, that sounds like a great idea. I think he has. <laughs> Based on Twitter, I think you know, it's, yeah? it's not out of the question that great. John Ledger is listening. <laughs> well, um, we'll take credit for that idea then, John. And uh, yeah, be sure to cite us, you know, whatever your next move is in the car rental space. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, thank you again for sitting down with us. I, I get, like I said, it's always a pleasure to have you in person. Uh, thanks for having me. Austin, thank you for putting up with uh, whatever level of uh, tomfoolery we've been up to today. <laughs> well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass today. For Dan Klein, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on!